Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No the Slate Political Gab Fest is sponsored by CVS Health, where health is everything. CVS is working to save thousands of lives, one pill at a time, with industry-leading programs that help people stay on their medication as prescribed. Visit cvshealth.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for May 8, 2015, the Je suis Pam Geller edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine joins me from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. And John Dickerson of Slate and CBS's Face the Nation is somewhere else. Where are you, John? I'm in Chicago. I'm in the city of broad shoulders. And John is wearing his cool glasses, so he looks like... Uh, oh, right. You can see me. I forgot. He looks kind of movie star nerd-like a little bit. He does. That guys. is John's look. That's what he's going for. Right? That's, is that the new Face the Nation the brand? The only way I can see. I'd keep them on. We weren't trying to make you self-conscious. Are you going to wear them on TV? Are you going to wear them on TV? rub my eyes. Are you going to wear them on TV? No, because I can. I'm only. Uh, I only use them to read. So then I would. I would spend a lot of time on TV doing this, looking over the glasses, which would, would make four out of five guests want to reach over and punch me. But can't you do that thing where you pull them off and put them right, on and, and, pull and them? use them to make some uh, incredibly poignant point you know, them at people? Yeah. No, that's true. I could. That could be my thing. Everybody needs a thing, you know. And mine could be the uh, uh, the pompous use of my uh, drugstore glasses. These are, uh, where did I, I bought these in some airport. Drugstore glasses, the John Dickerson movie. On this week's GabFest, the failed attack on Pam Geller's anti-Muslim gathering in Garland, Texas was ISIS behind it. Should Geller be vilified or celebrated? Then the GOP, America's party of diversity. Why does the Republican presidential field have so much more diversity than the Republican party does? And then the hilarious, ridiculous, alarming controversy over a U.S. military exercise in Texas, Operation Jade Helm 15. Plus, I can't believe you don't understand that the federal government is coming for their houses, David. How can you dismiss this threat? We will discuss that. The federal that. government is outside your door right now. Oh, my God. The federal government bed. knocked on John's door. You as, are hostile right now. territory outlined in red. You, they, if there were hostile, if the government was making a map of hostile territory, Emily, you, your house would definitely be in red. Oh, with, my God. That's so unwarranted. With your anti-police, anti-authority <laughs> positions. <laughs> All right. Anti-local government. Actually, I'm having like a civic-minded battle right now um, on my block to get a sewage drain installed. Why? Why is what's wrong? Why because do you... there's fetid standing water outside my house whenever it rains in the summer. That's why. That's a feature, not a bug. It's a pool. <laughs> <laughs> this is the way we call it a swimming hole. Yeah, exactly. My God, what are you, anti-nature? <laughs> I thought you went camping and stuff. All right. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter, including the most important cocktail chatter I will ever do. And Slate Plus, we will discuss men who pretend to work 80 hours a week and a few women who do, too. 
two american would be jihadists i guess they were actual jihadists tried to commit mass murder at an anti-muslim gathering in garland texas pam geller a notorious gadfly critic of jihadists of islamists has been railing against the shariaization of america attacking islam she led the she generated the campaign against the ground zero mosque which i think was her phrase even she has impugned president obama as possibly being malcolm x's illegitimate son called him the jihadist in the white house and she had sponsored a draw the prophet muhammad contest obviously designed to irritate and enrage her critics and enrage many muslims two american muslims including one elton simpson who had been watched and even charged by the federal government for radical activities were shot and killed when they opened fired outside the event which was called the american freedom defense initiative so emily is geller a free speech hero are you i mean i Suija guess she is pam geller Ugh, I guess we have to accept her as a free speech hero and then let us exercise our own free speech rights to completely denounce her views, which are just deplorable, full of, full of lies about everything from President Obama to God knows what else. And, you know, we have to rely on the marketplace of ideas to extinguish her rather than someone's bullets, which obviously is not the right course. John. John, you're looking quizzical. You didn't like that. Oh, no. No, no, no. I like, sorry. I like that. It's something came up on my computer screen. You did, Don't uh, mistake my... We are uh, here. Ignore your computer screen. I was calling up my notes because <laughs> I, was, I took notes in order to prepare for this discussion with my colleagues today. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, no, Emily's right. I mean, what can I say? Emily's right. Wait, that, it's going to be that simple? We're all going to be like, well... well of course it's that simple. You, uh, What's the complexity? In, uh... Yeah, how are we going to argue about this one? Well, okay, let's, all right, let's push this. Let's push the hypothetical then. So is it offensive to have a sponsor, have a Draw the Prophet Muhammad contest? Or is that, in fact, a worthy thing to do? Is the act of goading people and pushing free speech on this issue not merely okay within the American context of free speech, but actually a, a worthwhile good. And to hold, to push that one more step, what is the difference between that contest and Pam Geller and Charlie Ebdo, which we were fairly celebratory of a few months ago? I don't think there's any difference. I think that... I that, think there might not be. Well, I've gravitated towards the Ross Douthat view of Charlie Hebdo, which is that it's possible to find a place where you believe that everyone should have a free speech right and that they should be allowed to exercise it and you should fight to protect that. But that that doesn't then remove those who have the right to say whatever they want from all responsibility. And sometimes the lack of restraint in exercising your free speech should also be called out. Implicit in the criticism of what someone does doesn't mean you're trying to shut down their free speech rights. But I think when free speech is threatened by people who would commit violence to stop it, that the exercise of that free speech is a positive good under any circumstance. So if you are someone who is willing to to put out speech in the world at a risk to yourself because it is just so important that speech be protected, then that speech is is a positive good. It doesn't... Why? It, Tell us why. Why? Because basically there are two forces in the world. They're the force of of people who don't commit violence to stop ideas and people who do. And the people who do, we have to fight back against them at every turn. And the way you fight back against them is on the margins. It's, a, it's, with, it's by offending them. And it's by telling them, 
screw you. We're going to put these ideas, these stupid, juvenile, offensive ideas out in the world because it is so important that we set the precedent that violence does not stop speech. So so that you, in fact, the edge cases in these in these matter in these issues are the ones that matter. It's not the college student who's, you know, who's making some dumb joke at someone's offense who's never going to commit violence. It's it's the people who are saying who are up against it, who are saying this is a real threat. These people who would shut down uh, speech with murder and bombing and 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 therefore we protect those people above all and we give them status as a as genuine brave heroes. So but what if it's the what if it's an ineffective way of attacking that problem? So what if there's a, maybe some small gain from what you're saying, but that you end up the slop over effect is you end up then irritating, pissing off, and otherwise losing the chance to make common cause with a whole bunch of other people who happen to practice the same religion. And so that, yes, you strike a tiny little blow, but that you end up causing so much more harm, the net effect is... Well, then you're, what you're saying is that, you, that we should all be sitting and condemning Pam Geller... And that no, I don't think I said that. No, you're. Well, that's the implicit. No, that's the. No, that's the. No, that's the implicit conclusion. Versus them, but it's different from John's. No, I think what I was saying is that you're saying that this is a useful tool in the battle against uh, Islamic extremism, and I'm saying that it may be um, useful in one context, but incredibly unuseful in the collateral damage it causes. I mean, I suppose one way to reframe this is, David, in your us versus them, the free speech heroes, like the Pam Gellers of the world, are forcing all of the more neutral people who just don't want to think about this to take a stand, right? I mean, there are people like us who are not Muslim, who are like uncomfortable, but like, okay, yes, we see, of course, her right to say what she wants to have her cartoon contents trumps the rights of people to shoot her. But then you're also talking about Muslims who are moderates, who are not um, Islamicists. And David, I think what you're saying is that these cases on the margin should be pushing those people to be part of the same us that we're in and to declare that they're not aligned with the extremists who believe that you shoot people for portraying the Prophet Muhammad, even though the moderate Muslims think that it's against the, you know, that it's blasphemous to portray Muhammad that way. Is that one way to think about what you're saying? Yes. And I, I guess I think either way you argue this, you end up somewhere uncomfortable. If you argue my position and say, blah, 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 free speech, free speech, free speech, you're right, John, that you risk offending and alienating all kinds of people who are the natural allies of the moderation that you really wish in the world, that you really wish to moderate. On the other hand, if you conclude that Pam Geller and the extremists shouldn't be protected, then you're basically allowing those who would shut down speech with violence to have a victory. Well, I agree. Right. So you're saying that they, the, they shouldn't, the violence shouldn't be, I think this is Ross's framing, the violence shouldn't be a, a veto over certain kinds of speech. That's, but what I was trying to figure out is not the kind of whether she'd be, she should be allowed or not allowed to do this. Because we agree that she should be allowed to do this. I guess I was just trying to figure out the utility. Whether she should be applauded. We're having a conversation that's not unlike the one that the Penn, whatever they're called, folks just had over whether to give their big award to Charlie Hebdo, right? And in that case, the people who didn't want to go to that Penn event and were essentially boycotting the award were saying, like, yes, they had the right to print these cartoons, but I don't want to give them the highest award for doing so, even though a bunch of them died. 
let's just change the subject here slightly, which is that ISIS has taken a form of credit for this, although it does not appear that the attackers were in any sense trained by ISIS, but they they may have been, they appear to have been influenced by the propaganda and the the social media effectiveness of that of that movement. How are we to to think about that? ISIS appears to have given people a framework to think and act and behave in the world in a way that Al-Qaeda kind of never did. Al-Qaeda, which insisted on maintaining operational control of the people it was it was recruiting. ISIS is a is a is a set of ideas and principles that appears to be effective in causing people to act even without them being trained. I think that's really interesting because there was for a long time the question of why didn't why had there not been any smaller scale improvised, improvised explosive type attacks in the United States after 9/11 and it was the theory was that bin Laden uh, and his lieutenants wanted to do only big, large-scale, massive message-sending kinds of attacks. And now there seems to be um, a shift towards the kind of inspiring lone wolves, uh, inspiring lone wolves to um, just kind of act on their own behalf. In conversations with people involved in the intelligence business in our government, they are super worried about this. They are just basically accepting that in the next year there will be a series of these and, and where these where somebody just self-radicalizes and does something awful. It will be smaller, obviously, than 9-11, or they assume it will be, because, because the bigger the attack, the more planning, the more planning, the more chances you can get caught, uh, the more you know, things that can slip through, but that they just basically take it as a, as a fact that these will continue, um, which we can talk about what that would cause. It would seem to me it might cause one or of a number of things. One is that people seem to be fine when they see beheading videos coming from ISIS, even more fine than they already were with um, enhanced surveillance from the National Security Agency or any other agency. So uh, if the idea is that there are jihadists, you know, lurking in any town, I bet the support for the Rand Paul position on the NSA would um, would slip more than it already has. But then I also think it, it could lead to, you know, a certain sense of paranoia if the, one of these can pop up anywhere. Right. I mean, this is a newly terrifying dimension of the Internet, that you would have a jihadist terrorist group that's excellent at recruiting people or just inspiring them via social media. And I'm sure you're right about feeding paranoia. I will also note in a more um, hopeful way that the federal U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit today struck down part of the NSA data collection program, saying that it was unconstitutional, or actually, I guess, just that it was went beyond the bounds of the statute. Um and that will be really interesting to see develop. Congress is thinking of um, some reforms to the NSA legislation that would, in a limited way, curtail all the data mining that's going on. And this court order seems to suggest that um, if Congress doesn't make the change, that at least some judges think that the judiciary should step in. And then you could imagine the kind of circuit split that would go up to the Supreme Court. One other, it seems to me, a result of this, I would imagine, not that the support for gun rights needs to be supported. People who believe in gun rights believe in it pretty strongly, but, and so it's not like they need another reason to believe in gun rights. But um, you could certainly imagine if the view becomes prevalent that you're going to have these kinds of um, random attacks from lone wolves, that being armed and prepared for such a thing uh, could certainly be a selling point among a certain group of the country. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is the case that liberals, after 
shootings like places like Newtown or in, in Aurora are always doubting this idea that a well-armed person, a well-armed person present would have been able to, in fact, prevent this attack. And here you have a here you have the the example of where it is absolutely the way gun rights people always say it is that a, here a well-armed people who are present were able to prevent death. But they were security people. They weren't just like people who happened to be carrying guns and had a really low oh, moment. If we're all well-trained, Emily. We're all <laughs> we're all acting for our own security. Right, we're we're our own we're our own militia. Gun anytime and shoot the mosquitoes in the fetid swamp. But you could imagine certainly that they, if it's lone wolves, they are they, they are going to adapt, and so they're not going to show up at super highly secure events. And that's why we need concealed carry laws, so that you don't know who's going to be armed at those events. On the other hand, let us say that these were very inept jihadists who only succeeded in shooting one security personnel in the leg before being killed, right? I mean, there is that. There is that. In in the name of not overreacting. Let's hear from our sponsor this week. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by CVS Health, where health is everything. Health is a team sport. CVS Health doesn't just fill prescriptions. They partner with doctors, hospitals, and employers to help patients manage their conditions for better outcomes at lower costs. Visit cvshealth.com to learn more. Anyone can get pills into bottles. CVS Health gets them into mouths. Many Americans who have prescriptions fail to stay on them, so they created industry-leading programs to help people take their medicines regularly. Visit cvshealth.com to learn more. The Republican presidential field, which expandeth by the minute, added Mike Huckabee, Ben Carson, Carly Fiorina this week. The field now includes an African-American, a woman, two Hispanics. It includes several people who aren't even rich. It includes Catholics and Protestants. John, how did a party that basically represents old white people become so strangely diverse? Well, so there's a bit of some jumbling things in there. Because when you think about super wealthy candidates who run for the presidency... Kennedy and FDR come to mind. So personal wealth and the White House. What's your point? Really rich people can turn into good liberal Democrats? No, my point is David mentioned mentioned net worth as as something associated with the Republican Party. And actually, it seems to me that it's, with the exception of Romney, um, it's mostly historically been associated with the Democratic Party. Um, What? Wait a minute. That is so not true of recent history. Recent history, very rich people are Republican. No, dude, 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 dude. I'm talking about candidates. I don't even think that's candidates. that's. How is that true? Of, are we of restricting candidates? ourselves to like who got dude, to be George president or George W. President? Bush was a rich man. Right. George but H. My point w. Is, George H. W. Bush was well off. Right. Ronald right, Reagan right, right. was very well off. So, and Clinton was Clinton was the had the lowest net worth since Truman. My and Obama is, Obama had no net worth until he wrote that book, basically. Right. So. My point is, if I said to you, who were the richest presidents in American history, in modern American history, you probably wouldn't have gone to Reagan. You probably then next would not have gone to McCain. You probably would have gone to Kennedy or or FDR. The point is not a big one. It was just that on the question of personal net worth of candidates and associations with parties, it's a little bit more mixed. Anyway, back to the other question, which is, why does why is the Republican field... Uh, full of interesting competitive candidates. I'm not sure I know the answer. Who said they were competitive? Some of these people seem just implausible to the point of, like, they're just there for their own fun or narcissism or just to enhance their name brand. Carly Fiorina is not going to be president. Isn't she running for vice president? She could be vice president if she runs a good (laughs) campaign. 
If she were a man, you wouldn't have made that joke. But so what's the what's that point about the diver, what does that mean about the diversity of the party? I mean, I don't know what to say about the diversity other than that I don't know what to say. I mean, I think we're in like a moment where it can be a virtue to have a background that is unusual in a particular setting. And so it can make you stand out. And you're the woman or the black person or the whoever it is that is in line with Republican principles, but also seems like maybe they could cross over because you have this different gender and ethnic picture you're presenting. It's also, I mean, isn't it very important for the party to have this contrast? You don't want to make it pure tokenism, but it's it's very nice for Republicans to be able to, who have had so much criticism of Obama, to be able to say, "Look, it's nothing. It's not has nothing to do with the fact that he's a black president. We have, you know, we have our leading black candidate. It's nothing to do with Hillary. It's nothing to do with the fact that she's a woman. We, you know, we're pushing for a woman or on immigration reform. Look, we found Latinos who who are share our views on immigration reform. It, it is a, it's not a, it's not to trick you. It's not like but having, nobody." Nobody's making it's a collective useful. decision to put these people forward. In other words, this isn't like a bunch of Republicans saying it would be good for our brand, and therefore we're going to have these. We're going to have Ben Carson run. Oh, I think. But I think with Ben Carson, or we're going to have Herman Cain run, or we're going to have Alan Keyes run. I mean, the, all three of them are African Americans, going back to 1996. Um, I think Ben Carson so has been not, an African American since he was born, even before 1996. Well, I'm talking about candidates in the year they ran. Um, so that's not You're going back really to 1996. You're irritating, John. I know John is so irritating. So you know, but but, but John, I I think with Ben Carson there absolutely was an effort. When Ben Ben Carson gave a speech at a faith breakfast in 2013, he was not a political figure, and the Wall Street Journal immediately runs. You know, Ben Carson. What was their editorial? Ben Carson should run for president. There was a way in which he was pushed into becoming a candidate because I think a lot of people in the Republican Party, which has problems with race, which basically has very few African-Americans who support it, saw him as a useful and valuable and and smart foil to Obama and the Obama presidency. So I do think there's a way in which Ben Carson is was nudged into a presidential campaign that wouldn't have happened had he been maybe a white doctor, a white you know, successful neurosurgeon giving a speech at a faith breakfast. I think that's a fair point, particularly your last one. But the way you were first describing it, it was as if the, you know, Republican committee of nominees got together and said, well, we need a woman, we need uh, an African-American, and we need two Cuban-Americans, and, and potentially even an Indian-American with um, Bobby Jindal. But I think you need a stronger uh, answer, and I don't have one. I mean, the answer Republicans would give is that that they are a party of opportunity and your skin color doesn't matter, which is why you can have Bobby Jindal as an Indian American, you can have two Cuban Americans and an African American and a woman running. So I think also presidential campaigns are aspirational about the future, and that's, that's what the Republican Party would like to have its future be defined as, to be both multicultural and and to fix their problem with gender. I think if you look at the actual shape of the party as it's represented in its congressional wing, it's extraordinarily the other way. So there are 108. Now, I think these numbers actually are out of, uh, these are the previous Congress, but there were 108 majority-minority districts, and the Republicans represented just nine of them. So that's quite opposite from the diversity of the presidential field. The average Republican House district um, was 75% white, and the average Democratic district was 51% white. The House Conference for Democrats, I believe it's still true, is 
white men are a minority. So the party is not just defined by its presidential aspirants. There's also the other group of elected officials, and there's not a heck of a lot of diversity in that. I'm amazed that there are nine majority-minority districts that are held by Republicans. What are they? A lot of them are in Texas. And so those would be just minority residents, not even minority voters. So they're probably like heavily immigrant, Hispanic with low voter, I bet. There have been some court cases about how Republicans will appear to be creating a majority-minority district. And if you look at the residency count, they are. But if you look at likely voters, they're not. So maybe that helps explain it. So Emily, why do you think is it is are you, are you with John that this is just a you know the coincidence of people who are who have an aspiration for the presidency and that it doesn't it doesn't represent anything significant that we could say about the party itself? Well, no, I don't. I don't. I wasn't saying that. I was saying that it's not like the design. I, well, all I was com- I was I was pushing back against the idea that this was some like put up job by some group of Republicans in a room saying we need one of this and one of that and one of the other thing. Yeah, I mean, I guess it must be somewhere in between. I don't think it's mere coincidence, but it has more to do with the receptivity or perceived receptivity of donors. So people who do have some sway in the party as well as voters. Although then with someone like Carly Fiorina, she must just be bankrolling her own campaign. And so, but, and I I guess I'm not sure whether how much design to read into this, but it does have this very happy effect of creating this multicultural picture of all the candidates that will be good for the party. And I think genuinely should be celebrated that, you know, the party appears to be open to nominating someone and is moving beyond those strictures, even if the policy prescriptions don't reflect the values of or the voting patterns of most minority people or women. David's argument about one of Ben Carson's, I mean, Ben Carson has a lot of reasons he's appealing to Republican voters. I mean, one of it is that speech he gave at the prayer breakfast, which, by the way, pretty closely matches Herman Cain's moment of fame, which was in a town hall during Bill Clinton's attempt to sell health care reform. Herman Cain stood up at at a forum and confronted him, and that was his sort of um, hero moment. And after that, everybody um, said he should run for president. But I think the fact that Republicans can support a person they find dynamic for all these other reasons, um, they like the fact that he you know, sort of speaks the truth. He's not of Washington. He's a social conservative, but he's also an African-American, and therefore they can say, you know, conservatives feel very much under siege from the left and the press in that every time they have any make any statement about race or about urban issues, they're immediately labeled racist. And so uh, I think there is a, there are some people who like, the, like being able to like Ben Carson. For the same reason they like being able to like Marco Rubio. What's interesting and different about Carly Fiorina is that there is a much more explicit, from her and from Republicans, argument that she can say things about Hillary Clinton that men can't. But they don't say that about Carson. And I don't. I, I wonder, Emily, if you can explain. I mean, they don't say that Carson can say, can things, say about things about Obama. about Obama because he's an African American. Well, you know, they don't use huh. that as like one of the selling points for his candidacy. They're not running against Obama, though. They're well, I mean, the... they are, but you're right; they're not running directly. Do you think him. it's possible? Is it possible that the Republicans will run a ticket of two white guys, or is that just oh, it's I inconceivable? Would say it's likely. Really. 
Oh, well, I guess there are enough Cuban Americans floating around in this discussion. I maybe I take that back. I think you're. I think David, you're. I think you're really onto something. I think that is particularly if they're running against Hillary Clinton, which they are almost certain to do. You know, they're going to have. I mean, Republicans already have a bad map. The electoral college. If you look at the states that are almost certain to go to the Democrats and match them against the states that are almost certain to go to the Republicans, the Democrats have a big advantage. Um, As Ryan Priebus says, the Democrats just have to be good. The Republicans have to be perfect in winning the electoral college. If that fight, if they believe that fight is going to be fought in suburban areas in battleground states, then it's going to be fought uh, with a lot of women voters who they normally have trouble with anyway and are going to have even more trouble with with Hillary Clinton. So they need to do something to shake up. Who's on those short women Republican VP list. I can't even. So, so they're going to have a lot of trouble with women. They're not going to be able to fix their situation necessarily with women by putting up a woman because there isn't really somebody in the mix other than perhaps Fiorina. But they're going to need to do something to shake up the coalition. And so, if you pick a candidate, if one of the two candidates comes from a minority or is a woman, it doesn't obviously solve the problem, but it suggests newness, sense of the future difference and that you know that's they're going to need that in addition to lots of other things but you so i could see the incentives being um, towards what you're describing david so you don't think they're there are there really not they're not obvious back pocket women well there's you know nikki haley in south carolina yeah. the governor of, of um south carolina susan martinez in um uh, New Mexico. New Mexico. Sorry, I was, uh, I was my brain froze there for a moment. Um, I was so just those, excited. I knew so the answer. That's two re- female Republican governors. I'm sure I'm missing. Um, I'm, I'm missing someone else. But that's not well, along with Carly Fiorina. That's more than you got maybe on the Democratic side. Yeah. All right. The political gab fest is, of course, part of the Panoply Network. So let's hear from one of our sister podcasts in the network. Hey, this is Brian Koppelman, host of the podcast The Moment. This week on the show, the great Tim Ferriss, best-selling author and speaker on what was the worst year of his life so far. Tim had a health crisis, and he speaks with openness and candor about how he got through it, what he learned about himself, and what we all need to know to protect ourselves in similar circumstance. So please listen in this week to The Moment. Get your jackboots on. Take the black helicopter out of the garage. It's time for conspiracies. Jade Helm, which is the... Pentagon's plot to take over Texas, Utah, and Southern California, hostile territory, this summer has prompted uproar, fury across the Southwest, particularly in Texas. Certain Looney Tunes, led in part by Alex Jones of InfoWars, are crazed about this idea that a U.S. military exercise across the Southwest over eight weeks, a very expansive special ops and rangers exercise, is actually Possibly a plot to disarm civilians, possibly preparation for the military training itself and how it will disarm civilians when the time comes. Possibly it's a plan for a Chinese takeover orchestrated by Michelle Obama from the White House. Possibly Walmart is in on it. Some empty Walmart stores are going to be used as staging for this uh, this takeover. This would all have passed quietly in the world of nutters. Conspiracy theory night. In in the conspiracy theory night, the ships of the conspiracy theory would have passed in the night, except that Texas new governor Greg Abbott wrote a letter announcing that he was going to have the Texas National Guard indeed monitor this Pentagon exercise to make sure that everything was above board. And then uh, Louis the Loopy Gomert 
also a congressman from Texas, also weighed in and said he understood why everyone was was anxious about it. He attacked. Even Ted Cruz said he understood why everyone was anxious. Gomert Gomert was particularly annoyed that the maps of this exercise had Texas labeled in red as hostile territory. Don't you feel bad for whoever made that map unthinkingly, imagining that we live in a 50-state union? It's very funny. So, John, Jade Helm is, of course, a rehearsal for taking over civilian America. Correct? Yeah, I mean, I don't understand why this is a topic. It's self-evidently true that they're trying to take over first Texas and then Brooklyn and create the famous Austin to Brooklyn superhighway to be paid with universal currency. Emily, if you were going to take over the country using a military exercise, would you start with Texas? I would not start with Texas. Seems hard to take Texas over. It's very big. We liked Austin. People have arms. Oh, yeah. It could be a little difficult. I'm going to inject a slightly more um, serious, I don't know if that's the right word, note. So, you know, okay, yes, this is nutty. However, it's not a bad thing for people, Americans, to be skeptical of military power and of thinking of the ways in which we deploy all that police power. If these were people who were worried about, you know, police departments getting outfitted by SWAT teams and using all their military gear, we would be totally outraged in the other direction. So my point is simply that, yes, this is like the moment where the right meets the left on the fringe and it's just way too out there to take seriously. But there are other incarnations of this kind of libertarianism that are important and useful. Right. So if this were, say, the government, can you imagine if the government were government, which is supposed to have uh, only a spy overseas, if they were spying domestically on all of us? <laughs> exactly. And mining all of our data and, mining and not all of our data. what they were doing with yes. it. Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine if they bad. did something like that? That could never happen. Yeah. So, John, does this represent, does this paranoia represent a healthy form of paranoia in this case or not? Well, I don't know if it's healthy because obviously things... What we do in life is we distinguish the difference between what's rational and what's not. And so, yes, there's a continuum on which certain kinds of paranoia is healthy and rational. And then other kinds, while it's similar in kind, still needs to be considered loony. Because once you include the loony in the possible, then anything's possible. And it's possible only because you had the brain to think it up. And so that just gets us into a a real mess because... There's no, you don't need evidence to prove anything. You don't, you can be resistant to evidence because any evidence disproving you is only further evidence that there is a conspiracy to fool you. Also, it's a little depressing that Greg Abbott, the newly elected governor, felt that he had to cater to this. I mean, that really like that. But I guess what's interesting, I mean, as a country, we've always liked to engage in conspiracy theories. And, and I think... On the conservative side, there has been a, there's a rich tradition of being highly suspicious and in believing, I was reading about that in the 1976 Republic, Republican presidential race, the Texas Republicans were suspicious of Reagan because he wasn't conservative enough. And in one of his campaign stops in Texas, uh, a questioner asked him about the conspiracy in the television networks. And Reagan said he didn't really believe there was such a conspiracy. So I guess my point is they were thinking about conspiracies in Texas back in 1976. You know, there's, there's always at conservative rallies more in, in liberal or Democratic rallies you, hear, you would hear for a while about the Diebold or Diebold um, voting machines that, you know, were being used throughout the country to um, 
give Republicans victories across the country. And I'm not suggesting equivalents. I'm suggesting people who would bring up issues that are not, you know, in, in the, on the front pages every day. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was but a, on there, the Republican there, side, there have always been these issues about, you know, UN taking control of the United States. There, again, in 1996, there was one about the Pennsylvania Railroad. This has always been at the kind of fringes of politics. Yeah, and, uh, and on the left, I would also point out the in the 80s, there were huge conspiracy theories, particularly in the African-American community around AIDS having been created as a government plot and crack being sold by the government, by the CIA in America's cities, that crack was being, in fact, marketed by the government in an attempt to kill black Americans. So it, it, the paranoid in American life exists everywhere where there is American life, except in this podcast, apparently. Do you guys think that this Jade Helm kerfuffle, during which Greg Abbott has been roundly mocked for the most part, will have any durability? Will this have any significance after after everyone has fun with it, after Rachel Maddow does her special week about it? I think it'll have no significance other than Greg Abbott will have a little asterisk, like Rick Perry is seeming like a figure of fun. John, what do you think? Yeah, I think pretty much that. But going back and um, going back to Emily's point, I mean, when the go- the government coming and taking over private property for whatever purpose the government states that it wants is a big issue among conservatives. Takings, and, and so takings is is a it's in the continuum. So I think the extent that if somebody becomes a laughing stock for something that's further down the continuum, then it makes it harder for anybody trying to make a legitimate case you know, sort of in the middle of the continuum about takings or something else um, that doesn't get a lot of attention but is nevertheless going on. So I think if you're a conservative, you don't want the laughing stock moments because it makes it harder for you to bring people's attention to the serious moments. Right, right. What did, did, did Rand Paul say anything about Jade Helm? He seems like he ought to have ought to weigh in somehow. Maybe not. I think he'd be he'd be somewhat sympathetic. They didn't outline Kentucky in red and call it hostile territory, so he's stayed out of it, I think. All right, let's move on to cocktail chatter when you are sitting on your porch watching federal troops strip the uh, civil rights of your neighbors. What are you going to be chattering about, Emily? All right, in my quest for improved cocktail chatter, I came up with one. It is a it little re- you really, It really took you took that to heart. You took my, my nastiness to heart. <laughs> well, you apologized very sweetly, but I, my fear is that you were right, and so I have taken it as constructive criticism. New York just made an exciting announcement. It is going to begin accepting the uniform bar exam. Not this summer, sadly, for all those students who will be paying lots of money to study for the bar, but soon, I believe the year following the summer. This is so great. It would be so much better if we had one bar exam for the whole country. You took it. It can be, honestly, in my view, as easy as I don't care how easy it is. It would just be so good if instead of having this ridiculous state-divided-up guild system where we force people to spend thousands and thousands of dollars to renew recertify their legal licenses if we just had one test and you took it once and that was it and it, new york is a big you know gorilla in the world of law and so for to, new york to make this change suggests that other big states should follow along and i want to give missouri special credit for going first in uniform bar exam world is, the, so, is there no state portion is there like a local local law portion of it 
I think they're not having the local law portion, which is so exciting. May, some states could really? have another day of their local law. Por- the local law portion, honestly, has always, at least in my experience of having taken it in Connecticut and Massachusetts, it was much easier and less of a big deal. So I don't even, fine, keep your local law portion, I guess, although I would prefer to get rid of it. The truth is, the more technical the bar exam is, it just doesn't it doesn't reflect people's real legal practices. If you need to know about how to do a trust in estates in Connecticut, you have to go look it up anyway. You don't remember. Um, certainly not if you're me. So in any way, let's all celebrate the uniform bar exam and progress in that direction. I thought you hadn't passed the bar. No, I took the bar twice. I am retired from the bar because I don't pay so my you dues could, because I don't practice So law. you couldn't, in fact, do trust in estates in Connecticut because you're not a member of the bar. Not so, without going back, renewing all my dues, and I'm sure I'm like way behind on continuing legal education credits. It would be a huge pain. And anyway, who would want me to be a lawyer? I don't know what I'm doing. So wait, if you don't pay the dues, is it um, is it like with the DMV when you don't renew your driver's license, and you have to go take the driver's test again with a, like that dude sitting next to you, or do you just pay back and you're fine? I think it depends on the state and how long you've not paid your dues for, but I know that I did officially retire. I still get notices from Connecticut and Massachusetts about how I have retired, and I have not tried to renew my license, so I don't know what you have to do. All right. My chatter. I have never been more excited about a chatter than about this one. Never, ever? Maybe never. Maybe never. It's a huge amount of log rolling. I do very little log rolling for Atlas Obscura, my new venture, but this today... Oh, I know what this one is. Prepare yourself. I am working on something which is so exciting. So Atlas Obscura, as some of you know, is the company I run now, and we're a website, but we're also we also do real-life events. Our mission is to show that the world is filled with incredible places, and some of those incredible places aren't just halfway across the globe from you, but they are around the corner from you. Wherever you are in the world, there's something amazing to see. And so on one day a year, a day we call Obscura Day, we celebrate that idea with a global extravaganza, 150 real-world events in 39 states and 25 countries on all the habitable continents, where we do events of all kinds showing you the strangeness and the wonderfulness of the world right around you. So if you happen to be near Chernobyl, we're going to be doing a tour of the contaminated cities of Chernobyl, the, 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 the band zone. We'll go into the band zone. If you're near Los Angeles, and the, there's a bunch of events in Los Angeles, but you can go out into the desert in Palmdale for a sunrise falconry demonstration. Uh, if you're in Brooklyn, there's a bunch of things in Brooklyn, but you might go to the private concert at the robotic church where there are these robotic instruments. It's amazing, strange, amazing. Um, there's going to be a private viewing of the Charmanka Kinetic Theater in Glasgow. There's going to be at the Sea Monster Museum in Iceland, there's going to be a special program for kids for about sea monsters and looking, unveiling the world's greatest sea monster map. And then the kids are going to look, go look for sea monsters on the beach. Emily in New Haven, we're going to do a thing at the Cushing Brain Collection. So you should, you should go. Oh, to the... I love that place. That's awesome. Yeah, John in Washington, you can come with me. I'm going to take a, I'm going to lead an expedition to Fort DeRussy, the the abandoned overgrown Civil War fort I love to go see in in Northwest DC, just hidden off in the woods. Um, It's just a chance to get out in the world. It's a Saturday, so it's a free day for you probably. And almost anywhere you are, there's going to be something incredible. You can go to atlasobscura.com slash obscuraday2015, atlasobscura.com slash obscuraday2015 to see 
all around the world where there's something happening and and to sign up, you have to register for these events. Or if you're too lazy to do that, you know what? Just email me, david at atlasobscura.com. I will tell me where you are. I'll tell you some events near you and help you find something great. david at atlasobscura.com. So I really hope you can get a chance to participate. Obscure Day, May 30th. This It's a Saturday. And I hope to see you out there. John Dickerson, what is your chatter? My chatter is uh, I've been spending some time looking at some time uh, watching old episodes of Face the Nation, um, which is which is just an absolute delight because just the way everybody behaved and just the antiquated ways of television are uh, are fascinating to me. Perhaps in part because it's I'm reliving my childhood too. But um, but anyway, I found I come I came across two things that were. There are many things that were extraordinary, but two that, that stand out. One is in 1960, John Kennedy does uh, um, Face the Nation two days before the Wisconsin primary. Wisconsin primary, Wisconsin primary was a big deal because it was a test to see if the Protestants in Wisconsin would vote for Kennedy. It's also a place where he was going up against Humphrey, who was basically con- considered Wisconsin's third senator. If he could beat Humphrey in uh, Wisconsin, then it would give you some sense that he you know, had... Uh, some momentum in the party. And in the interview, well, first of all, the fact that it's happening two days before the primaries is amazing, right? Because now candidates just like totally shut down and don't want to do anything that might upset the apple cart. And so they wouldn't want to go expose themselves to questioning so close to the voting day in a race that was as tight as theirs was. But what makes him the most irritated in this half hour questioning is the questions about whether he's spending too much on his election. So he's jumping about this because the accusations that his father are trying to buy the election. But what's amazing is that he's defensive about spending money to win his election. It just seems so quaint, you know, that, that um, it was still seen as, as uh, sort of unseemly that you'd be spending a lot of money to try to get yourself elected, which is the vestiges of a time when people weren't even allowed to pretend like they wanted to be elected and that you had to be selected. But the most extraordinary thing I saw in the last couple of days was Leslie Stahl's first show. She has the Commandant of the Marine Corps on, and this is during the war and fighting in Lebanon. It's during the Reagan administration um, in 1983. And the Commandant of the Marine Corps is talking about how Lebanon is turning the corner and how U.S. Marines there as a part of the peacekeeping efforts are turning the country around. And he gets very animated And he says, we are on the verge of building a stable government in Lebanon, and to even suggest that we withdraw at this time would be close to criminal. Three weeks later, 299 Marines were killed in the bombing of their barracks in Lebanon, and the U.S. troops were withdrawn. It was just the most amazing thing to see, you know, in the backwards look of history, to see somebody so adamantly claiming there was peace and to even suggest there wouldn't be, so close to then the actual huge catastrophic act of terrorism there. It was really striking and a good reminder that we should always be questioning. Our interns, Tark Barrett, our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The GapFest is part of the Panoply Network, and you can check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com Panoply. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest. Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. And our Twitter feed is at slategabfest. Please subscribe to the Gabfest iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. Darn it, leave a comment and rating. We will talk to you next week for Emily and John. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. (laughs) 